Today's show is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure using StrongDM. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com slash SDT. That's strongdm.com slash SDT. All right, joining me today is Justin McCarthy, CTO and co-founder of StrongDM. And we're going to get into all the kinds of things we want to talk about in security. But before we do that, I know, Justin, I know you are an expert at growing food and gardening. And uh, as longtime listeners of the show will know, I have recently got into landscaping. And by that, I mean I bought a weed torch, which is just a propane tank uh, hooked to uh, a torch that I now use to, uh, to quote, weed, which is me uh, burning weeds into uh, smithereens. Uh, and that's, that's really the only form of gardening or lawn work I do now because there's danger involved. Uh, it's become a family activity. I've got somebody on the hose. Um, and it's just a great way to keep your rock bed looking perfect. So with all that said, I want to know from someone like yourself, because uh, it's springtime, are you actually going to attempt to grow some of your own food that you're going to consume later this year? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and I feel like actually our, our house has become an informal like uh, help desk during the pandemic because gardening is just one of those hobbies, it turned out, that really, you know, really took off uh, when everybody was at home looking around, looking around at that patch of grass if they had one. Some people were thinking, let's burn that patch of grass. Uh, apparently. Um, but then other folks threw some, you know, threw some compost on there and then threw some seeds in there. Um, so what, yeah, we, what have you so, gotten in? Have you, have you gone in like full on, like, do you have like a, a like a tiered garden now? Like where, what has been your pandemic garden? How big has it gotten? What's in it? What could we eat if we, if, uh, this is if the apocalypse happened, what would we be getting in your garden and trying to eat? Sure. So the, the first bit of advice is, uh, live in a place where there's a lot of sun, uh, but uh, but you can still get water. So that's that's the first bit of advice. And then once you're once you've accomplished that goal, um, it's unlimited. Uh, the ground just keeps producing. So uh, so soon soon uh, you'll be able to eat all the summer stuff in my in my yard, which is all the squash, all the all the corn, all that stuff. Um, and that's uh, yeah, this is pre pandemic, too. This has been years of uh, the entire front lawn being a big old garden, um, eight, uh, four by eight. Uh, raised beds with drip irrigation, all that stuff. Oh, so you're like, you're like legit serious about it then. So you actually, you know, how much like on a weekend, how many hours are you out there? Like, you know, doing some type of gardening like, work, like five minutes. Um, because just like, just like any good engineer, oh, hold on. it's all, I'm all it's all, this. Now, it's all, now, autom- now it's all automated. <laughs> Do you have like a CICD uh, of a pipeline of gardening? Maybe that's definitely that's what have, you need to like, get into. Uh, the, the the key bits of automation I'm going to recommend are uh, make sure you have time-lapse photography so you know what's happening like with your son and everything. That's a good one. Uh, so if you just have a security camera or something, you can make time-lapses. And then the other thing is just uh, you got to have your irrigation on a timer and drip irrigation on a timer. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't uh, shortchange that at all. Like you got to do it. Otherwise everything's going to turn brown. So, and then you just uh, get a, get a truckload of compost and then you're, you're in, you're in business. And good to go. I like it. So that's, you know, that's, I think all the people that we end up interviewing or working technology, that's really what the problem becomes is uh, I'm going to start this and then I'm going to find a way to completely automate it and move on to something else. It seems like no matter what it is, right. It's like brewing beer. I've heard the same kind of things people say. It's like, well, I have it all figured out now and I hit one switch and then I come back in 30 days and beer is magically there. Yeah, unfortunately, you also uh, one one of the products that I grow is is hops, uh, which is tangent to the other the other hobby. Because uh, I think uh, like uh, I think on my list of uh, interests, it's all all the trite like typical uh, programmer hobbies. Which means, yes, in fact, uh, there's also some beer brewing. All right, so beer brewing, gardening. All right, what about this one? Flying. I feel like flying is very popular. Flying lessons. Have you done that? 
so um so I, I haven't gone all the way to the to to the GA aircraft but uh, but I will say that when flight simulator 2020 uh came out I was I was building a rig uh just for that and that was uh that was actually before GPUs became unavailable this year <laughs> <laughs> so I was very happy that Flight Sim 2020 uh, forced me to build a nice gaming rig. Um, uh, so yeah, I've been flying all around my neighborhood and everywhere in that, of course. I would like to see how many GPUs have been bought solely for Flight Simulator. Like that's what my son, it's like every time he's like, oh, I just, he, he downloaded it, the Microsoft one the other day. And he's like, oh, it's still downloading. I'm like, well, how big is it? And it was like, just enormous. I'm like, what, like, what are we doing here? It's like, we're running this off the NAS and he's explaining, I was like, Wow, like we, we, I didn't, I didn't really think we needed the gigabit uh, Ethernet uh, in your room, but I guess, I guess, evidently we we do. So it's pretty, it's pretty heavy duty, yeah, for sure. And then, but everybody that got a nice GPU in the, you know, in this last summer is, is so happy now because you you can't find one anymore. Anywhere, right? I mean, yeah. now, now that the crypto prices are up. Well, I always think too. It's like now the game is so good. It's like it's actually too hard. I think it's like well, that's what I was trying to explain. It's like well, they're actually trying to teach you how to fly a real plane. It turns out that's really complicated. Maybe we need to dial it back to just you know uh just the joystick right just the simple thing right it's so uh but as a fan it is a fantastic game i don't know who works on that or like how many people are on that but it's it's, it's an it is just amazing to see how how realistic it's uh it's gotten so i guess the next thing will be some type of virtual reality where we're literally flying inside a, a, a real simulator we'll see what you, happens you, uh, yeah it's it'll, it's coming soon i think you can you can already you can already put your uh goggles on uh if you've got them it's oh. already yeah they got the headset support in there and everything all right. Well, that's fantastic. All right. Well, everyone go down flight simulator and, and let us know how it goes. So uh, as I mentioned before, though, you're at Strong DM. And, but, uh, you know, before we kind of get into some of the, the uh, security stuff that you're working on now, I just I always want to know a little bit about, more about people. So what was your you know, entry way into tech? You mentioned you're already doing the tech hobby. So which one of the many uh, avenues into tech did you follow early in your sure. career? Sure. I don't know. It, it, it always sounds pretty trite. It's pretty, pretty typical. Uh, I would say for, for folks of my vintage, um, uh, I had a, I had a bulletin board. Yes. Oh, you right. do you host so, the whole thing, everything? Well, well, I mean, well, I don't know if it was called hosting, but, uh, but like, you know, it was, it was, right. You phone line and a modem. Which version of modem were you at the 2400 baud level? Yeah. yeah about, like, about that, about that vintage. Okay. All right. So that, that's yes. maybe gives everyone a sense. So you, you, yeah. you booted up the bulletin board. Did you have a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, users, if you will, participants. All, in it. Yeah, all the all that stuff because uh, you know uh, all, all the all the old all the old classic stories. Just sub- substitute them here. <laughs> okay, all right. So you did the bulletin board, and then like, what did you uh, did you go major in computer science or technology, or did you go like uh, did you already know all the stuff and major in philosophy or something? Uh, it was more the latter. <laughs> Good uh-huh. guess. Yeah, that's a very common pattern. It's like I don't want to learn computers. I'm going to read philosophy. Go on. <laughs> yep. And then, uh, and then, and then I'll say like when uh, when Web 1.0 happened, uh, it it finally dawned on me uh, that this might be more than a hobby and an interest, and you might actually be able to people might actually pay you for this stuff. Um, so I would say that's that's when I moved from the East Coast to uh, West Coast and began um, and began building startups. That's fantastic. All right. Well, one I wanted to talk about, we won't go through all of them because you know you, you did you did your time at EMC. We'll skip over that. We all know what that's like. But a place that you worked uh, on your LinkedIn here, Cafe Press. I feel like everyone listening, we everyone has been to Cafe Press. Everyone has bought something there. Everyone has tried to you know have something built. So what I want to know is a couple things. One, what was it like working at Cafe Press? What did you actually do? And then of course, we need tips. Tips on using Cafe Press. Like, how do we get better stuff from them? Sure. 
Um, all right. So it's funny. It's funny. You should ask about this. Like it's certainly a fun business to work on. Um, it's, it was so, so long in my past now that I feel like this is all ancient history, but then I'm noticing actually, you know, in the modern era, um, actually like printed, uh, printed gear is a pretty popular merch. Merch is what the internet runs on. Like it's like, it's powering half, it's It's powering half of YouTube. Yeah. So I, (laughs) I feel like it's a, the idea that you can put your stuff on, on a shirt or a mug is like newly resurgent. So I've been very, uh, happy to see that. Um, but yeah, at the beginning of time, um, it was certainly like one, one of the, you know, uh, I think we were in the top 100 sites on the net, uh, for a while there. And, um, and it was all just bleeding edge stuff. And for all the software engineers that were part of the team, um, it felt so novel uh, to be physically manufacturing something <laughs> uh, because of course, like, uh, you know, working with bits for so long and now you could see them, you know, translated into a physical, you know, a shirt printing out in front of you. Um, but none of that had been done before at the individual level for anybody yeah, that's like new. screen printed before it was always, you know, you know, uh, quantities of dozens or hundreds. Um, and so going all the way down to quantity of one, there, there, there were just no techniques. So it was, it was full Willy Wonka, laboratory um that's 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 the image you should have in your head and that's what it was like so when it started like like i don't know i just envisioned like someone putting in an order was there any automation between the actual like order or was it literally like just a printout and then somebody walked over and started pressing the t-shirts like what happened yeah they're they're very they're very quickly had to be uh substantial automation because uh because it it caught on like pretty quickly um uh but what i'll say what there what what there wasn't uh was just precedent for you know print you know, how to get down to that quantity one that, that where the quality was good. Right. Uh, And so that was, that was the leading edge of the R and D process, like for years and years and years. Um, uh, And then like, like just one, one example, Uh, if you've screen printed before, you know, that if you have a dark, if you have dark material, um, you actually have to put down a base layer uh, of white, right. In order Mm -hmm. to get the pigments to appear. Otherwise it'll, you know, right. Um, So like that, how you do that, if you can imagine with, for example, like a dot matrix, uh, sorry, a a inkjet printer, (laughs) right. Where you're printing out each little, each little dot of ink. um, You, you actually have to put down a white layer and then come over and print on it again. Right. Okay. So if you can imagine that level of precision on top of cotton, like that, you don't just snap your fingers and like get, you know, get your HP. (laughs) Well, yeah, but nobody knew what they were doing. So, (laughs) so, so it was definitely like first principles research, uh, uh, around how to get cotton to like absorb a nice picture uh, that you know you you could read and uh while shipping zillions of boxes uh as fast as people could pack and print i just like the, i just envision the meetings like i don't know what you're doing at the time scrum or something else it's just like you know because it's always like well where are we at with the bugs and this thing isn't working and the build's broken but i just like i just imagine this person in there it's like well today i'm working on getting the ink to stick to the t-shirt mm-hmm. uh and it's not right it's bleeding over and it's just it just seems like you know people yelling at each other over t-shirts because of course like every unit like no matter what the work is eventually it becomes passionate and people get mad and i get to see someone like throwing a t-shirt you know oh, yeah. getting heated oh, yeah. about like this isn't yeah. right this isn't the yellow i ordered yeah. this is this is something different so is if, it true is, been... it, is there passion in t-shirts I, I, for sure, I, I actually maybe if any of my colleagues end up hearing this, uh, they'll they'll help me fill in the details on the on one of the awesome bugs. I remember there was there was some ordering bug where uh, I placed some some order, you know, in in what I thought was the CI/CD system, uh, and then for whatever reason it flowed through product to production, and uh, yeah, sure enough, like uh, a good four or five or six full boxes of uh, <laughs> of some nonsense image uh, arrived at, at headquarters, <laughs> and that was kind of a you know an everyday occurrence. Some 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 comical uh 
you know, big pile of, uh, of products like that. Was uh, pretty that's, that's fantastic. Well, what about, you know, there's a lot of talk of now about the internet about like, you know, uh, kind of monitoring different behavior and, you know, people saying, you know, uh, inappropriate things. So I, like at cafe press, like this would seem like the first place maybe that showed up the internet where people are like sending stuff in. You're like, Whoa, we're not printing that. Like you're like, um, you've, uh, you were rejecting you. And then you have to come up with like some terms of use to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put this picture that you sent in. It's offensive or something. What, how no, that I think, work? I think a lot of the social media companies will also be familiar with, uh, the, the teams that are responsible for that. Certainly, certainly in Cavi Press had that in any, any of those, uh, environments. Uh, I can, I can, I can also remember one time there was a, a pretty large DDoS, uh, related to some objectionable material, uh, where, uh, where somebody wasn't pleased about some product that was being sold. So that was a pretty regular thing. Yeah. It was, I think because the messages were so pronounced like, you know, it, it, it get, definitely gets tangent to politics. And then that, that creates that kind of attention that, you know, you'd rather not have. Um, it really is. When you think uh, yeah. about it, it's like a precursor to so many things, right? You know, you're just like, we're printing t-shirts, but it has everything, right? It has like, we've got to have like some user management. We got to look at what people are doing. We got the physical mm-hmm. world. So it is uh and I don't know. I mean, I was obviously Cafe Press still out there, so I assume it's still doing super well. But it's it's it feels like yeah yeah. You know, there, there, there are a lot, a of, lot of places. Yeah yeah. There are a lot a lot of places that uh, that'll that'll make you a product like that now. But uh, but certainly that was one of the first. And uh, and uh, yeah. So like I said, definitely bleeding edge stuff back in the mid two thousands. Literally bleeding bleeding on cotton. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. So you've you've done all that. You 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 learned everything there is to know about t shirts, and that obviously prepared you. Uh, naturally to, to work in security. I'm sure that was exactly mm-hmm. what were you thinking when you're looking mm-hmm. at this uh, t-shirt. So, so tell us first exactly who is strong DM and more importantly, what led you to start strong DM? Sure. Okay. Well, let, let me, uh, I'll say that I'll say sort of the essence of what the product is first. Um, uh, so we uh, grant access to sensitive systems for your technical staff. So the, all of that infrastructure that contains your database, your servers, your Kubernetes clusters, um, Granting access to that for your DevOps team, your engineers, your data scientists—that's um, the nexus of where where we where we work. And we tend to end up replacing um, some of the ways that folks are doing it today: traditional VPNs, perhaps um, some aspects of uh, uh, storing as you know, uh, storing keys on their uh, server. You know, just uh, yeah. you know, maybe accidentally putting it in source control, like all the things you're not all supposed those, to do. I'm sure that I'm sure things. people are doing that. People listening mm-hmm. to this right now are doing that. Stop doing that. But go on. They've, everybody has stopped doing that. But yeah. Um, so the, so so I'll just say that with that in mind, um, uh, you know, I, I would say the the genesis of it for for me anyway. The, I would say that my co-founders have slightly different versions of this, but um, for me, is I, I was always that person, uh, either saying no, you can't have access. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Which is equivalent to saying, no, you can't do your job. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm sure that never very popular, uh, not very, yep. very few yep. people buying you beers at the bar. Uh-huh. Go Correct. on. Or saying, sure, you can have access. <laughs> very popular now. <laughs> and, and very popular, but crossing, crossing my fingers that, uh, that, uh, that, that, was, that there wasn't going to be another shoe to drop. And so I think that, um, that balance being on that edge, um, there was just never a comfortable answer. There was never a way to comfortably and confidently say, yes, Brandon, um, sure, you can go ahead and have you know, access for an hour or a day or a month uh, to the production database. Um, uh, there was, there was just never a systematic way of doing it. There was never a way of, 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 of saying yes, um, yeah. with confidence that you weren't creating a security problem. Now, is it fair to say, cause you know, you know, identity and access management, there's like big market out there and lots of different people doing different things. Is it, you know, you tell me, is it fair to say like privileged user management? Would we want to bucket strong DM there? Or do you think of yourself as, you know, attacking the problem in a different way? 
Yeah, um, I think the spectrum of, I, I guess, what you traditionally might call privileged, um, it's that's in the spectrum of access uh, that that is part of of what we see out there. Um, but you wouldn't call, um, you know, access from between a developer and a QA environment. You wouldn't exactly call that privileged. Um, okay, uh, but that access might take the form of, you know, there's a web endpoint, um, there's a Redis cache, uh, there's a Kubernetes cluster. Um, it's it's this sort of diversity of access that's all happening to achieve this use case of I need to push a build to staging, I need to push a build to the QA environment. Okay, um, so that access is absolutely in our wheelhouse. Um, and then that extends through to production as well, which you would call privileged. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, the reason I kind of like to ask that question is I think maybe that notion of privileged management, maybe it's just going away because to some degree, all access um, is important to someone. Right. And then, of course, all mm-hmm. access can be exploited. Even some of the stuff you're talking about there, it's like, you know, so much talk about supply chain. Right. The oh, supply yeah. chain CICD. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like what you said. It's like, well, the developing QA is not really privileged. It's like, well, it is if. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. That gives me access to uh, your supply chain and I can like stick something in upstream that I'll like, you know, that'll flow downstream. And then it's like, uh oh, you know, now we're, we're in big trouble. So, I, I, you know, I agree. I think maybe that, that is sort of like a, a quaint way of thinking about it. So, well, you know, so that's you clearly identified the problem. It's been around for, for a while, um, but that's obviously not enough to start start a company. So what um, did you do? Like, how did you meet your co-founders or how did they, how did the three, I think it's three of you, right? All three of you. How did you guys come together? And, and like, what, what convinced you, right? Cause everyone's always asking this question. Like there's a million problems in the world, but you decided this is one that you're going to spend all your time on. Like, who are these other people that got into business with you? And how did the three of you just say, yes, we're going to go do this. Sure thing. Um, all right. So um, the, the way we ended up coming together is, is prob- probably first the, is the connection between, um, uh, myself and and uh, and one of the other two co-founders, uh, Liz. So she she and I just coincidentally have known each other since high school. So um, oh wow, uh, so we've known each other since, we, weirdly for weirdly for decades, but never had a chance to work together. But always sort of traded notes on our you know what we were seeing in our careers. Um, and it just happened that both of us came to sort of a, a point where we were both interested in in trying something and thought we'd do it together. Um, uh, and then Liz, fortunately, um, had uh, a chance through um, actually a previous uh, company was acquired. Uh, and so she sort of looked around uh, on the team there and uh, developed a strong relationship with one of the other one of her colleagues there. And she said, this is this is the guy uh, to uh, start something with. So the three of us just got together and um, I don't know, just the normal, the normal way started making a big, long list of what we might work on. Um, and then, uh, and then when we, uh, when we finally settled on this one, uh, put together a prototype and I would say, I, I think of often the moment where you, uh, turn the laptop around and point it at the, uh, the person you're hoping to react to it, uh, from that moment <laughs> of that initial reaction, we knew we had something. That's pretty good. Well, I think, you know, there's like, I always find at the beginning of these companies, really three things that like started, it's either someone like built the product, right? So you have a product, but you don't necessarily have any like customers. So you figure it, but you've got something to start with, or you've got customers that want you to build something, but you don't have a product, right? Or the other one is like, someone has access to money. Someone was able to raise money and uh, you know, get something going because just on sheer personality. So, so for, for you was like, was it all of those, a little bit of each, or was it like, no, no, we've, this one really carried the day. 
I think I think it was actually just the people. Um, so we knew we were going approximately what we were going to work on, and we knew it was going to be the three of us. And so uh, and so from there, developing some conviction and uh, and just having a having a point of view. Um, that's what unlocked what you what you said being able to raise money. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. Well, and now you're you're off having a ton of success. So, okay. So let's dive in a little bit around you know before we kind of maybe talk more about the specific product. One of the concepts that I think gets thrown around a lot is this idea of zero trust, right? And I think it goes all the way back. I think, I think the Google people wrote, wrote the first paper. I don't know. Maybe someone wrote it before that. But um, I think it's something that people maybe hear but don't always understand. So with all that said, how do you define zero trust? Sure. So, um, so there are a, a lot of definitions. You can go read the Beyond Corp, the original Beyond Corp materials. You can read a lot of the zero trust um, uh, sort of implementations that are out there. Um, and, I, and I'll say for sure that our, our product is a zero trust product. Okay. Um, the key, the key difference from, I guess, the regime that came before um, is, is actually at the network layer. So how it treats the network. Uh, so uh, let, and I'll just contrast this with, um, with basically the predecessor concept, which was of course VPN, right? So <laughs> VPN uh, uh, had essentially trust built into your cider on the network so if you were if you if you were able to authenticate you were able to be a part of this subnet and then that being a part of that subnet conferred a level of trust right and so i would say the key feature of zero trust is basically just deleting that assumption and then instead making it more of a point-to-point uh um between the you know the end user on the workstation and whatever target they're trying to get to so finding a different way of establishing trust um so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a weird name, of course. Uh, I think nobody's particularly super happy with the name zero trust, <laughs> but, but the, the key feature for us as we experience it is, is sort of delete the VPN and then what? Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the big thing, right? Is like, Hey, once you take that assumption away, then you have yep. to figure out, it's like, well, how, I mean, it is to your point about how am I going to establish trust then, right? <laughs> it's not so yes. much that we're never going to have trust. It's like we have to find some way to do it. So I think this is where it starts to get, I think people will generally understand that. But I think what sometimes people don't have an appreciation for then is, okay, we've deleted the VPN. Many of the people listening to this and the industry in general, we're still going to have applications inside a data center. I know it's crazy. I know not everything, believe it or not, not everything's on the cloud. And that I think is often the place where people maybe start to get a little confused or like, huh, I've got all these servers and I've got these applications. You just took away my VPN. Um, and so what exactly, you know, so I think that's the question they always ask is like, one, what should they be doing for these legacy applications so that they can have this zero trust? And two, why is this so hard? Sure. Sure thing. Um, so I think one, one thing folks might notice when they, when they dig into this is oftentimes, um, the the you know the the banner zero trust when you look at the implementation the the sort of implementation of it actually is always using web browsers as, as an example right yep. so it's like here i am getting to jenkins um yep. you know inside of you know jenkins that is otherwise uh, private okay so that might be an example of illustrating a zero trust uh network um and i think uh how you do this for web applications is is actually pretty well-defined. There's a lot of examples. You can, you can feel it and you can intuit it. Um, where I think everybody, where generally everyone's intuition sort of tapers off <laughs> um, <laughs> is when you say like, okay, now do Redis. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and, uh, and so that's, 
uh, that's what our product is all about. It's answering, okay, now do Redis, <laughs> but I still want the promises of being able to have, some, you know, something about being able to trust the device for origin, something about being able to establish that this is branded accessing uh, the, the target system. Uh, I want that uh, authentication to happen, you know, in, through my SSO, with two-factor, all the ways that you want authentication to happen, okay? Um, but, uh Redis is a fairly modern product. Uh, I'll use it in perhaps older example, uh, Sybase. Um, neither Sybase nor Redis uh, are going to change the ways that they authenticate. They are not in a hurry to have direct first class zero trust access built into the, the entry point for either of those protocols. Okay. Um, and so that's where the identity and protocol aware proxy that is StrongDM, that's, that's how we adapt to those systems. Yeah, I think that's just a fantastic way of, of thinking about it. I always think it's like these applications were here before before all of this. And then, <laughs> to your point, I think you're being generous when you say it's like uh, they're not going to know. It's like, no, no one's going to teach these applications about anything about this, right? So you as the security person or anyone have to figure it out. And and I think, you know, you kind of hit touched on it that really this starts with this idea of this identity aware proxy. So maybe walk us through any one of those examples you wanted and say, okay, um, Sybase or whichever one you think is a better example. It's like, okay, well, how does that actually work? So I have this proxy and I've got this legacy database. How are you going to protect me now? What's the thing you're going to do? Sure thing. Um, yeah, so let's let's uh, well let's let's stick with the uh, let's stick with the Redis example for for a second. Um, uh, or if if you wanted a, a more let's let's do um, let's do Microsoft SQL Server. How about okay. that? That's yeah. that's we different all know that one. We've all been there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so so you've got a Microsoft SQL Server out there uh, somewhere, and you have uh, and you have you know you have a, a production incident, or you have a, a QA environment where you need to inspect something on it, or you have a you know a data science uh, use case where you have to like fetch a data set from it. Um, so what's happening um, in in our version of zero trust networking and in our version of infrastructure access is that session to interact with that database be, still begins on the workstation. Still, so it still begins with the human, and that human has authenticated through most likely an, a very familiar SSO, right? So you've established your authentication through a local client that's actually running on the desktop. So one way to think of it is instead of clicking on the VPN icon to connect to that trusted network segment, you're clicking on the StrongDM icon to initiate the identity aware proxy. Okay, okay. got it. So I'm logged in, I'm ready to go. Uh-huh. You're logged in, ready to go. So then you're just opening whatever tool you would normally open. So you're opening SQL Server Management Studio or Tableau. Okay. Right. And then um, mm -hmm. and then the traffic is then routing through the proxy to the next hop. The next hop is our proxy running in your infrastructure. Okay. And then those packets uh, that actually represent that interaction with the database, um, they're being intercepted and then actually mutated in flight. Uh, and that mutation, what's happening to those packets is the real credentials for the target system are being injected dynamically. Okay. Um, and so for the end user's point of view, they're just logged into the target system. Uh, and from the database's point of view, it's seeing you know, a, a correctly credentialed session. Um, it's just the apparent point of origin is the proxy. Right. And I think the important point to show here is like, we're not, I'm not coming through a web browser. I can be using my regular, you know, SQL server tools. Right. So this, so to me is the D DBA. Oh, that's scary. Scary just to say that loud. I would never be the DBA, but you know, I, I'm interacting in a very natural way with the database, right? I'm not, you know, if you will, stuck inside some like web technology that's confusing me. Right. That's, that's sort of, I think one of the main benefits is, am I getting that right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's it, and that we've we've obsessed over that user experience to make that possible. So it's always going to feel like your native tool. So if you're using Kubernetes, it's going to feel like it's going to be kubectl. Uh, if you're using SSH, it's going to be your native SSH client. Right. Yeah. So I think you know a couple of things that I can point out here. I think is always important. It's like one, I like I like your idea of like it's almost like we've deleted the VPN client off our off our machine. And uh, and as, as your point, it's like really point to point security, right? It's kind of what you what you're establishing there. And then I think the question that, that um, I'm going to speak for like I don't know. I'll try to speak for the developers again. Maybe a, a little bit of a scary idea is that now if the tool gets in the way or it starts to feel like, hey, I'm I that you're slowing me down, there's too much latency, or, you know, you're just not allowing me to do the things that you want to do. That is, I think, one of the most common objections, um, if you will, just we'll say broadly for ops and, and developers. So and you, you mentioned that you kind of sort of obsessed over that, but kind of maybe dig in more to that. What, like, how have you obsessed over that? And then what should me as a, as a user, what, what kinds of differences should I expect if I'm, you know, authenticating here through or interacting rather through a uh, strong DM. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, th- so f- for sure, I totally agree. If there's, if there's any kind of friction in the experience, like your, your, your reflex is going to be thrown in the trash and, and you should. <laughs> so we, we certainly don't get happy users unless, uh, unless we can eliminate that friction. Right. Um, so, uh, so let me say one of the, one of the ways, just an example of what it means to obsess over that. Um, if you, let's say in the, in the VPN scenario, um, your first task is to get access onto that network segment. Your next task is to get logged into the target system. So let's say a Kubernetes cluster. Okay. So I want to uh, I want to execute a kubectl command on that on that particular target cluster. Um, I have to know the name of the cluster. I have to know the the credential that I need to use. So the particular uh, in the case of Kubernetes, many certificates <laughs> uh, to to use. Right. Uh, that has to have been transmitted to me somehow. Right. right. Um, so if you think of it already, there are a lot of addressing and credentialing that's sort of layered together in order to ultimately satisfy my, you know, get pods command. Right. right. Um, so when we when we can do end to end security and we can do it in a protocol aware way, um, that credentialing is just the initial authentication. So as long as Brendan has logged in once. Right. Um, everything about according to your role in the org, what what credentials you should be using accessing that cluster, that's all taken care of. So you're just typing get pods and everything just feels faster. So there's just fewer steps. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, we should go so far as to say like, hey, you know, the goal here is to make your life easier, right? All the things you just talked about, like, hey, you just get here, you just log in and I'm going to, you can start doing your job. You don't have to do all this other, manage all these SSH certificates that are probably not secure and we're worried about. And so, um, I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've tried to make this pitch many times and so, you know, sometimes people roll their eyes, but others it's, I think it's maybe you have to uh, experience it to like really believe it. But the goal is to really, we want you to go faster, right? We don't want you to have to deal with this and we want you to do it in a secure way. So using this proxy and using this technique, if we've done it correctly, right? Your, your life is going to be easier. I mean, that, that to me is, is where we're trying to go. Now, have you, having said all that, are, do you have, a, are, are your users experiencing that? Are they, are they feeling like, wow, this is great. This thing's out of my way. Is that kind of the experience you have for like a successful strong DM user? Uh, yeah. I mean, so for the, for, for the 80% case, of course, there, there are certain protocols that um, there, there are always a little bit trickier because uh, you know, the particular, 
uh, habits of the particular client, you know, uh, uh, in, in terms of what certificates it wants to see or what, you know, w- what URLs it wants to access. Um, there's always little stuff to work on around the margins. But yeah, for the for the right down the fairway use cases, um, uh, what all our users tend to say is, yeah, I, I had I had three things to think about. And now I only have one. And mostly I mostly I've forgotten about it. So for the end user, uh, hopefully we we just get out of the way. Yeah, and I always think that's it's always funny um, working in security off and on, right? About either whether it's single sign-on or something like this. It's like success is uh, they just completely forget about it and take it for granted, and they don't even they'll even like forget they have it. So then you have to go back to them and then remind them, like, isn't this great? And they're like, uh, no, yeah, this is good, but I don't I don't really think about it anymore. I don't care about uh, all the things that you do for me. I just I just take you for granted. So um, there is, you know, I, I guess I would say there's no pot of gold at the rainbow. There's just less stress at the end of the rainbow. I think that's what the, that's, the that's a fine, that's a fine destination for us. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's what we're all trying to get to. So, all right. So that all makes sense. So now maybe for everyone else though, it's sort of like, so you're, you're really taking on this, you know, um, this idea of zero trust and helping, you know, that connection and like, so I can do my work. But before that, like you mentioned authentication and, you know, there's like user provisioning and there's lots of other things. So as you're talking to customers, like, what do you recommend for them? Like, are, are they going to use like an Okta for their authentication? Do you interact with those systems? There's a, a bunch of other single sign-on solutions. Like, how does that park work? How do StrongDM and, and those kind of access management systems, to use maybe the old term, uh, how do they interact? Um, yeah, so so uh, I would say all of the identity providers um, that are out there and all of the existing sort of RBAC, uh, major RBAC sort of a major role-based uh, sort yeah, of a uh, role-based access control, right? Yeah. Role-based mm-hmm. access control environments. Um, uh, we just try to harmonize with all of them. So, um, so yeah, it's great if you have a, you know, a first-class identity provider that you're happy with. Okta's one, uh, Google obviously has one, Azure has, you know, so like pick, pick one, <laughs> pick one and use it. That's our, that's our first recommendation. And thankfully that's like a pretty widely shared recommendation. No one's going to argue with that. <laughs> so, but your goal really um, to interact is to inter- integrate, I should say, with, with all of those, right. And, and make it, so you're, you're not requiring a specific access management solution. You just kind of want to plug in and you tell me what we'll have, we'll make it work. Right. To- yeah, totally. So, and, and to one level down from that, like um, to use the example of active directory, uh, um, you know, we, we, if you're an active directory shop and you are really happy with the way you have your OUs laid out, like that's exactly what we're going to, what we're going to configure the system on. Right. So, so that's, what, that's music you know, to like a million people's ears, right? It's like, yeah, and, and, yeah. And let me say everyone's an active directory shop, like no matter what, eventually, <laughs> eventually at the root of it all, there's a, it's it in is, there somewhere. Yeah. Even places are like, ah, we don't, we don't have it. It's like, no, you don't. You just, you just don't you know do. where you have it. You have it. Don't yeah. trust me. You have it. Yep. So the way to, the way to think of it maybe is that, you know, you add a data science intern this summer and normally, um, you know, they might have access to like five or six or a dozen different systems. Uh, that might be five or six or a dozen Jira tickets or ServiceNow tickets. Um, ideally, that is in, in, in this worldview, it's adding them to a particular OU or an Okta group or something like that. Perfect. So that's like basically you, the organization tells you what should people have access to. That's, that's fantastic. And then, of course, right, we would tell all of the, everyone that whatever access management solution you pick, it needs to have two-factor authentication, right? Some type of multi-factor and that's your, because, you know, strong DM, I mean, you're going to be required, if you will, relying on that, right? You're only as good as the authentication system that let you in. Is that a fair statement? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we do, we do have native two-factor, um, but we, we certainly prefer if the, you know, if the front, front door uh, is all, also two-factor as well. Um, so you can sort of flip, flip some switches and turn on as much two-factor as you want, but uh, we, we definitely recommend having at, at least some at the front door. 
Yeah. Well, I think we all do. So yeah. So it's great. I mean, if you don't have it, although I would tell everyone, it's like, sure, use, use strong DM, uh, two factor if you're not, but really go back. Like if you don't have anything else, like you just, you, you have more work to do. Your work is not done. Go, uh, go find some, uh, two factor. Now, the other thing I want to talk about, I want to bring our, uh, our good friends, the auditor into the conversation, right? Cause the auditors, no, we love them, right? We always, we always look forward to hearing about that. So, um, one of the things, you know, kind of old school auditing is sort of like, privilege user information, knowing who has access to it. And then also being able to, if you will watch what, what the privilege users are doing. So how does strong DM help with, with that part of the world? Sure. Um, yeah. So this is, this is of course a, a big part of um, why some of our customers make the switch because they have, they have a compliance event coming. Um, uh, so, so I would say a big part of our job is, is participating with and supporting uh, any, any sort of an audit event. Um so the, the key, uh, the key thing to understand is like, I'll, I'll just ask, so Brendan, what did you, what did you have for lunch last Tuesday? Uh, what did I have? For lunch? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no okay, idea. Great. Yeah. Lunch. Okay. Yeah. So who, who, who had access to that Kubernetes cluster two months ago at, at no, 4 PM? Yeah. No, idea. Okay. definitely no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the kind of phrasing that you're going to get during an audit. Um, you know, uh, you, you may or may not get the, the, the full microscope treatment, but, um, but like really basic stuff, like who had access, who in theory had access to that. And maybe if in theory they had access, did they use it? Yes. Yeah. Um, good, those good questions. Are, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, know, <laughs> and those I, know, are, I know. I feel like I'm already sweating. I'm already feel like I'm doing poor, <laughs> poorly on the audit, but yes, I don't have answers to any of these questions. <laughs> yeah. Those, so those are just like right out of the box, superficial, super easy to answer when um, you're fully aware of the protocol, you're fully aware of the role-based access control. You have a total registry of all the target systems. Um, it's very easy to answer those questions. And then we also go a level deeper than that because we understand the protocol. So because we understand the, every byte, every packet, um, we're able to, for example, um, reconstruct and playback SSH sessions. Or uh, in the case of Kubernetes, uh, uh, an exact session or a debug session that's interactive. We're just going to give you exactly the commands that were typed. So, I mean, I think that's awesome for two reasons. One, it shows, you know, if someone wants to know, you can show exactly what somebody did. Uh, And two, right, I mean, I think, you know, outside of the security stuff, sometimes it's just not clear. Like anytime you're doing some type of retrospective, like something went wrong, you know, like, you know, someone mistyped a command or, you know, or, or potentially did something, you know, for nefarious reasons. It's like, you know, the fact that you can kind of, if you will, replays or you've logged everything gives you kind of that definitive evidence of like, here's what happened. Here's why that, here's what that led to. And at a minimum, right, either you can put in some, some way to take away access is the easiest if that's something that's important, or you can actually put in some policies to be like, well, you know, we, we need to make this harder when people do this, like we need to notify someone. So um, I think that's, you know, a fantastic part of it. So when you get into the logging though, like maybe talk a little bit more about that. Is it, are all applications logged equally? Are there some applications that if you were a little bit more blind to, because it's not as easy to see what's going on? Like, how do you think about that problem? You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's very similar to how anyone would, if you just sort of think from first principles, like what would you want to know about, um, you know, some database interactions? What would you want to know about a Windows remote desktop session, right? Um, We kind of answer, we have different answers for each one of those protocols. So um, for the things that are shaped kind of like databases, we generally um, are going to log much of the plain text of the, of the body of the query. Um, And then maybe things like how long the result set and how big the result set was, stuff like that. Um, in the case of SSH or interactive Kubernetes, you're going to do basically every byte back and forth and replayable. So that essentially the terminal capture. 
right? Nice. Um, nice. In the case of a Windows remote desktop session, um, it's a fundamentally graphical protocol. So you're going to want to do every mouse movement in every pixel. Um, so we just have replayable movies of, of whatever you're doing in RDP. And there's nothing more exciting than the replayable movies. I always like watching them. You're always like, that's what that's that's when it comes in. It's like, oh, can we speed this up? Let's triple speed this thing up. That's uh, yeah. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, the video player has, has fast forward. <laughs> that's gonna say that's that's the one place where you're like, yes, let's let's work it at five x speed and see what happens. So, all right, so that all makes sense. So it's good. So I know how to audit. I know how to securely connect. Um, you know, the other question I think it's for these types of solutions, like, okay, I like the idea. I like the idea of an identityware appliance, like. How how hard is this to deploy? What how quickly can I get something up and running? Are we talking months, years, days? Yeah. Um, so so the the answer to that is um is uh, of course we're we're as much as we're obsessing for the end user <laughs> to make it uh to make it sort of fade into the background. Uh we're also obsessing ar- around deployment. So um I would say the key way we enable um rapid deployment is by um, again, just harmonizing with sort of the way folks deploy. So, um, uh, so a big one for us is the Terraform provider. Uh, so, if you uh, if you are already a Terraform shop, then you're going to reach for that. It's going to be straightforward. Um, uh, we also, of course, publish containers, and we have you know sort of great recipes for deploying into into Kubernetes as well. Um, uh, fundamentally, what the proxy is is just it's just a single Linux binary, right? So it's just uh, it's a very simple piece of software. There's no dependencies. Um, it's uh, designed to be uh, have essentially no memory footprint. Um, so you can put as many as you like, uh, throughout your case cluster, uh, uh, and all the clouds that you support and in your, um, in your data center in Cincinnati, it works equally well. Fantastic. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, kind of maybe on the end user side, what, uh, which deployment model would you say is her, is there one that's becoming more popular? I've containers, all the rage you mentioned Terraform, but like when you kind of look at your install base, like what are people actually doing? Sure. Um, it, it is all over the place. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say like there are many environments where for good reason, um, you know, they, they haven't moved to Kubernetes and so like, and, but they have, let's say, you know, some VMware, right. So then you're going to have like a traditional VM, uh, and it's going to be, you know, our binary running, you know, as a system D service, that's a very natural deployment pattern. Um, there are other environments where you're going to have an auto scaling group or something, uh, that's spinning up machine instances according to, according to load on the proxy, um, and that's going to be a, a natural flow as well. And then, of course, there's the Kubernetes environments. So I don't know. We kind of we kind of see them all equally distributed. Um, I don't I don't have a winner, unfortunately. Uh, you know, obviously Terraform is pretty dominant when you come to actually you know like instantiating infrastructure. That's pretty dominant, and that's why we have a first class provider. Well, that makes sense. And I think, you know, there are no winners. There's just IT. This is the big mess out there. So the fact that like <laughs> sure. everyone's doing something different, that that probably means you're really successful. That probably means that's, that seems to be what, uh, what it is. And then you mentioned it briefly, but I assume like all the, the major clouds I, I'm, I can work, I can use this to interact with AWS, Azure, GCP, you know, all, all of that is all that ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and maybe like among, among, um, customers that we see, um, it could be that there's even a little bit of a skew toward multi-cloud mm-hmm. uh, because in some ways, the more heterogeneous, the more things you have, the more kinds of things you have. Uh, like if you, if you just have Heroku and that's your whole story, then you're probably not a customer. Right. Um, <laughs> but if you, but if you have two or three clouds in the mix and you have a legacy data center and you've got, you know, a mix of, you know, we've got SQL server and, and you've got Cassandra <laughs> um, and you've got Mongo. Uh, those are, those are definitely, um, uh, we're going to help rationalize all of that. So that kind of seems like a good key. Like somebody looking for a solution like this probably has a pretty heterogeneous environment, maybe multi-cloud, maybe just lots of different data centers. It seems like, is that generally the kinds of people 
that are showing up or is there any yep. size and, of company, number of employees and, or any other like way to think about if this is the right solution for me? Heterogeneous and lots of headcount growth or, or other churn, right? So if you've got folks joining and leaving, joining and moving teams all the time, uh, and, and you've got a heterogeneous environment, those are the, those are the biggest, biggest indicators that you're going to have somewhere in the mix. You're going to have a ticketing system that's processing a lot of provisioning and reprovisioning requests, and you're going to be hoping that uh, there are going to be few mistakes with those, and, uh, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna to help you make even fewer mistakes with some of those provisioning and reprovisioning requests. All right. Fantastic. Well, listen, there's really no excuses now. Everybody, you should know what Zero Trust is. You know, uh, should know how to protect your systems. Like we always talk about joke a little bit about legacy conf and legacy technology, but this is the kind of perfect solution, right? I mean, it's meant to deal with lots of uh, legacy technology. So anything uh, big on the horizon, anything coming up with Strong DM? Are you going to continue to make the, the product great? Any, you want to break any news? You want to announce anything? You want to make your marketing VP upset by telling us all about something special that's going to happen? But that's a that's a good that's a good point. I'm not sure if I should mention the satellites yet. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to skip the satellite announcement for now, and okay. uh, and I'll just say like uh, like everything about if you're a member of technical staff and you're accessing stuff during the day and you're not access and you're not had it satisfied with it in any way, we want to hear about it and we want to improve it. And so that's that's it. That's all right. <laughs> that's the roadmap. And that's good to know. And then if they want to tell you about why they're not satisfied, how how do they find you on the interwebs, as we like to say? You know, I know there's a lot of ways that people might uh, contact folks, but like, I, I, I don't call me old fashioned, but uh, you can just email me just justin at strongdm.com. Email's okay. the best. Well, all of this information will be uh, in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, I'll make sure Justin's email address is there. Uh, we'll also have a link. I believe Strong DM has a nice free trial, right? You can try before you buy. Is that am I free trial and, and uh, garden tech support as well? Okay. Well, there you go. So really no excuses. Okay. Everybody that's out there using a VPN, if you're on a VPN right now and you're listening to this, you're doing it wrong. You should call Justin or email Justin rather. Email Justin and he'll he'll hook you up. So, uh, all right, Justin, well, thanks a lot for being on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And uh, I just want to let everyone know if this is the first time I've ever listened to Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. You can subscribe probably just right in your podcast player right now, but you can also go to our website at www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. Uh, there you'll find a whole bunch of stuff. You can join us in Slack. You can uh, find old episodes. And if you are a super fan or if you just want some free stickers, this is what you can do. You just email your postal address to me at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com and I will send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.